Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, so periods to the, I think this is probably the darkest period in microbial history, perhaps. Definitely the darkest in bioterrorism. I would say definitely for bioterrorism. Yes, indeed. I don't know, like we talked about the Black Plague and that was a quarter of the world population that died from that, so. That is true. I mean, I think this one's particularly dark because it is so consciously done. And that makes it just so much worse, so much darker. That is true. But there was still, uh, I mean, we're going to see persecution here a little bit, a little persecution there. But yeah, I can totally see what you're talking about. Yeah. So if you haven't caught on yet, we are into another riveting episode of the Micro Moment. And today we continue to delve deep into the darkest corners of history on earthing secrets that were once cloaked in shadows. Today we open the pages of a chilling chapter revealing the sinister world of bioterrorism during the tumultuous times of World War I and World War II, although mostly in World War II, I think, today is, where bioterrorism was at its height. And like I said, probably the darkest time in bioterrorism due to the fact that most of these actions were done consciously. I know I had a hard time researching my topic. Yeah, I'm kind of scared for yours, honestly. Yeah. So... Let's get a little bit of context of where we are in history. Picture a world gripped by war, where espionage and covert operations were the order of the day. And I got a pretty good covert operations in mind, for sure. But lurking beneath the surface, unseen and often unnoticed, were the devilish scientists aimed at manipulating our microscopic friends and transforming them into assassins, although not very targeted. Each one holds the power to change the course of war and to become infamous in the pages of human history, and we'll dive into some of those scientists today. In this episode, we're unraveling the tales of terror and intrigue where humans develop the most horrific weapons ever known using elements from the unseen world. And we're not talking about the atomic bomb. Today's discussion on World War II, weapons of choice, was not a gun, was not the atomic bomb. But microbes. Today's journey drops us into the shadows of those world-altering conflicts to meet the creative scientists who use Berkeleyaria malae and Thracia's bacillus and the dreaded Yersinia pestis to wreak havoc on their enemies. And of course, no tour of World War II bioterrorism events is complete without the spine-tingling, horrifying exploration into the heart of darkness itself, exploring the horrifying and terrible events orchestrated by Japan's notorious Unit 731. That's true. And a lot of microbes that we have covered in the past are coming back in today's episode. Yeah, I mean, the CDC and WHO are not wrong with the seven or eight bioterrorist agents that they've selected as the the ones to watch. We see them again and again being used. Yeah, they keep popping up, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. Even before what we knew what microbes were. So, my dear listeners, prepare to be both fascinated and horrified by the sinister dance between man and microbe, where the consequences were as lethal as they were secretive. But first, let's set the stage for this harrowing journey into history's most enigmatic moments with a bit of context. 
John, do you want to get us started? All right, let's do this. The period is from the turn of the century to 1945. It was a time of extraordinary change and innovation, mostly fueled by wars and the impact they had on the people of the world. I often wonder if this period saw more change than our current generation or not, because it did have a lot of change, but so does ours. Yeah, man, I don't I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think like that is a hard sell, right? Like we have a lot of industrial and medicine development as opposed to, well, we still have medicine development now, but it's a lot more uh, technical, like uh, computers and stuff like that. Yeah, I would say this period really sets up what we see now. This is probably the period of the greatest change, but perhaps not the most change. I think today we might have the most change in society and culture and technology, just in sheer speed of the way that things are processed and created. But back then, it was probably the biggest change in shifting cultural ideas and societal norms. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about quantum mechanics and relativity. This is something I know zero about, but we did watch Oppenheimer, so I'm a specialist. We're basically experts. Basically experts. In the early 20th century, two revolutionary theories reshaped our understanding of the universe. Albert Einstein's theory of relativity changed our notions of space and time, while quantum mechanics pioneered by luminaries like Max Planck and Niles Bohr revealed the bizarre and unpredictable nature of the subatomic world. These breakthroughs laid the foundation for modern physics and technology. We also have atomic physics and the atom bomb. This has blown up in recent months due to the Oppenheimer movie, pun intended. The exploration of the atomic structure and the... I just got it. (laughs) But, um... So the exploration of atomic structure and the subsequent development of nuclear physics had profound consequences. The atomic bomb born out of the Manhattan Project during World War II forever altered the global power balance and ushered in the nuclear age with both destructive and constructive implications, not to mention it was the fuel for the Cold War. And we can't forget about penicillin and antibiotics, which we have three or more blogs on and three podcasts because we can't stop diving into this bizarre monumentous moment in science history. Can't stop, won't stop. We'll never stop. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) The discovery of antibiotics, starting with Alexander Fleming. But not stopping at. Never stopping. Serendipitous finding of penicillin in 1928 and then ushered in to the golden era of antibiotics thanks to Flory, Chain, and Heatley in 1940 marked a pivotal moment in medicine. These wonder drugs saved countless lives by effectively combating bacterial infections, revolutionizing healthcare, and increasing life expectancy. And boy, do we owe a great deal to antibiotics in this world. But once again, we're not going to dive into that too much because we have so much other material on it, and I definitely recommend going to find it because that is such an interesting story with so many accidents, so many moments of fate. 
I almost have like a spiritual connection to this story. Just because of how unlikely everything somehow came together and impossible odds. Yeah, it really makes you believe. So we'll move away from scientific improvements and go into the home. This is also a time where great things changed in the home. We see the widespread electrification of homes and cities, and this obviously is going to transform daily life. We have electric lighting, appliances, power tools, each of which are going to revolutionize different industries and make homes more comfortable and efficient. Not to mention you can stay up a little bit later when you can uh, see a little bit better. We also have another thing that I think we talked about in the previous episode. This now becomes in almost every home. And we are talking about indoor plumbing and sanitation, which we keep saying we're going to do a podcast on. We should probably call it the Bacterial Bowels and Bidets, a laboratorial microbiology adventure. What do you think of that? That's I like that. That's a catchy title. Yeah, that's going to be something we'll do in the future, I think. But anyways, plumbing, sanitation, it gave people access to clean water. It gave them uh, indoor toilets, which has got to be really nice, especially if you're in some of the northern states where it gets kind of cold or anywhere in the northern hemisphere where um, things get a little cold. Indoor toilets sounds fantastic. I don't want to be trekking outside in the middle of winter. Mm-mm, no way. And sewage systems also reduce the spread of diseases, enhancing the overall quality of life. Again, we're putting a little bit of distance to things that are going to cause disease from um, from people and the disease agents. And this, of course, is going to help everyone live better lives, longer lives. And finally, something that has changed the course of how we live our lives, transportation was really big in from the 20th century and the early part of the 20th century. This era saw significant advancements in transportation, such as the automobile being accessible to the masses, while the expansion of railways and the development of commercial aviation made the world more connected than ever before. It also gave troops during World War II a number of ways to transverse into much larger portions of Europe than we probably would have seen uh, in previous wars. Yeah, didn't the Jeep really come out around World War II? That I'm not sure, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that's where I first remember seeing the Jeep. I don't think it was around for World War One. Or at least not the one we really think of. Yeah, I wouldn't think that. I mean, the Model T was in the tens of the 20th century. Yeah. We also had social changes in this era. We had the women's suffrage and rights movement. In go, women, go. <laughs> the early 20th century witnessed significant strides in women's rights. Movements for suffrage and gender equality gained momentum, leading to historic achievements like the 19th Amendment in the United States and the extension of voting rights to women in various countries. We also see civil rights and anti-colonial movements. The fight for civil rights and the end of colonial rule was defining struggles of the era. Figures like Mahatma Gandhi, was a household name, and Martin Luther King Jr. was in his formal years, years that would lead to the U.S. Civil Rights Movement for justice, equality, and the dismantling of oppressive systems. Unfortunately, this movement is not complete, and we are still fighting it today. We also have the Tuskegee trial going on, or starting in this period, too, I believe. I believe that was the 40s into the 70s. Okay. 
So maybe at the tail end of World War II. I would say the tail end. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Which we also have a podcast on if you're interested in learning more about the Tuskegee trial. We sure do. Perhaps another one of the darkest periods in microbiology. It's up there for sure. Mm -hmm. And we have global conflict in the birth of the United Nations. The two world wars reshaped international relations. After World War II, the establishment of the United Nations aimed to prevent future global conflicts and promote cooperation among nations, making a pivotal moment in diplomacy and international governance. Okay, we're all done. Context. Hope everyone has a good idea of what we're talking about, where we're going, and what we're going to dive into. So let's dive right into the World War's heinous crimes against society using the world's smallest little organism. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Nice. Okay. So before we start talking about Unit 731, I would like to give a content warning. There's going to be a lot of rough material I cover, so if this is triggering or too hard to listen to, feel free to skip my story at any time. Yeah, and if you've never heard of Unit 731, um, hold on to your butts, because this is quite terrible. There's actually a reason why it's, I mean, I've heard about it, but there is a reason why it's still probably not as well known as it should be. But I'll get to that. Oh, okay. A mystery. All right. The year is 1937 to 1938, depending on the source. Japan has invaded China in 1931 at this point. And contr- it was 1931? Yep. Oh, I didn't realize it was that early. I think this is not the first time that they invaded China as well. This is several times, at least the second time. And they controlled large sections of the country. The location is Harbin, China, located in the province of I do apologize if I mispronounce this. He Long Jiang. He Long Zhong. He Long Zhong. The Japanese have set up a unit called 731 here for the purposes of medical testing. These experiments were done in secret, and from what I can tell, the site originally started to conduct research to benefit Japanese soldiers, such as how the human body can withstand hunger, thirst, or fight disease, and it originally had willing participants. This didn't last long, though, and the research shifted to include biological warfare development and the use of prisoners captured either from war, conquered territories, or communist sympathizers. Most of these prisoners were Chinese and Russian, but there are others such as Korean and possibly American. Is it just Americans that were living in the area? That seems pretty far away. Well, Russia seems pretty far away, too. Yeah, but they were fighting in World War at that point. Well, mm. 1931 wasn't a world war. No, that's true. No, this is like later on. Mm. I think this is when Russians became our allies that they started taking them in because they were originally allies with Japan. Mm -hmm. So I say Americans because there was a um, anecdotal statement saying that there was uh, an American in formaldehyde. Oh, my God. Yeah. This biological program started because officials were impressed it had been banned in the Geneva Convention. To quote from a New York Times article, which I'm going to quote several times, in 1995, if it was so awful that it had to be banned under international law, the officers reasoned it must be a great weapon. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure the Germans, like, despite all the terrible things they did, they did not participate in bioterrorism in World War II. 
Not that I know of, but they did conduct a lot of heinous medical oh, experiments. 100%, yeah. And I think that might have been partially due to um, Hitler was adamant about not using mustard gas because he had been a victim of mustard gas. And that's like the one thing he would not yield on or use. Oh, sure. But everything else was okay. Yeah. So illogical. That makes up for everything. Not really. Like we said, talking about some terrible, terrible people today. Yep. The unit was headed by Surgeon General Shiroishi with medical schools and universities supporting doctors and research staff. There were others, such as young uh, soldiers and youth, that were also stationed there. However, not much is known about most of the staff that worked there as records were destroyed at the end of the war. But more on that later. Mm. Okay, so let's get into what was done with the prisoners at the camp. There are many different pathogens tested there, sometimes to study the effect it had on the body, while others saw different microbes being injected into people to see the interactions and tried to make a new disease. Oh. The four main pathogens tested were anthrax, of course, caused by Bacillus anthracis, plague, caused by Yersinia pestis, cholera, caused by Vibrio cholerae, and typhoid, caused by Salmonella typhi. Hmm, those are two that we haven't talked about that much, cholera right. and typhoid. Well, we always give a shout out to cholera. We do. I think we, this is the first time we talked about cholera on a bioterrorism, though. Yep. It's been a good five episodes since we brought it up. And these were documented in the, I'm going to butcher this, Khabarovsky, Khabarovsk trials, but more on those later. Wow, there's so many things we're going to get back to later. Yeah. Hope the, you're going to tie all these these loose threads together. I'm I'm going to try to. All right. I mean, to be honest, like this could have been a whole series, but I'm doing I feel like a surface level. Yeah. It could be way more in depth. Mm. So, these were targeted because of their ability to cause epidemics and the ease in spreading. There were other diseases tested at Unit 731, which included syphilis caused by Trypanema pallidum, tuberculosis, by mycobacterium tuberculosis, smallpox, botulism caused by Clostridium botulinum, gonorrhea caused by Neisseria gonorrhea, and tularemia caused by Francisilla tyrannis, which we covered earlier and may have been the cause of the Hittite plague. Right? Yeah, I remember that one. But yeah, wow, this is so many different pathogens we haven't yet talked about. Yeah. I've also often wondered why cholera wasn't on the CDC's list. Um, Because it does seem like something that spreads pretty easily and debilitates an entire population. I think it depends. If you were to do a developed nation, I don't think it really, it's not very good agent because we have water treatment facilities, which would get rid of cholera pretty quickly. Right, whereas spores and aerosolization are a lot easier, I guess, to impact all different kinds of societies. Yeah, and countries where there are developing nations where maybe the water treatment isn't that good or it gets overwhelmed, such as like by monsoons, then I could see that being a quote-unquote better agent. I don't like the sound of that, but... Yeah, it's uh, sort of tricky to talk about for sure. So now, how do they infect people? Like I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of injections. Some were infected with plague by mice and rats, 
which had plague-infected fleas, while others were tied outside and were exposed to bombs or other delivery mechanisms that had plague cultures or infected fleas. Others were placed... So, wait, so they must have just put them in a room with a bunch of mice? Yeah. And just wait for them to bite the prisoners? They didn't specify, but I can imagine. Oh, how horrific. Yeah, or maybe they... I don't know. They don't even need the the mouse to bite them. They just need it nearby and the fleas to jump off and bite them. Yeah, but I imagine it's close quarters and the mice and fleas or the mice and rats are agitated and looking. I'm sure like everyone was just starving. Yeah. I don't think flea bites were the only thing, only bites I got. No, no, I can I can see like rodents being biting them if they were purposely starved. But and enclosed in tight spaces with no escape. Others were placed in a room with an infected person to see if the disease would spread. The worst may be the studying of sexually transmitted infections, though. They would make male prisoners infect others by raping other men and women to see if they spread the disease. Oh, my God. Women were also impregnated and infected with various diseases to see what the effect was on the mother and the fetus. That's terrible. With vivisections being done on some to see the development of the fetus. I can't even. Yeah, that's it. This is. Is it the worst it gets? uh, Oh, it gets worse than that. mm, All right, keep going. uh, Yeah, like like we said, this is this is a tough topic. So I mentioned a vivisection. What is it? It is an operation on someone to see what is happening inside someone so the dictionary specifies it on a living animal but this instance is done on people what is the grossest aspect about this is the fact that no anesthesia was used on these people did they survive is this something you said you just you die bleeding out in the most excruciating pain anyone could possibly even imagine times a gazillion i'm going to give a quote from the new york times article to describe it to quote the new york times article again this is one of the people that was doing their first vivisection, I believe. The so fellow, one of the the one of the quote unquote doctors. This wasn't Japanese. even a medical. Uh, this wasn't even a doctor. This was uh, a technician, a medical technician. Mm, I'm not sure any of these people could ever call themselves doctors. No, I think they break the first rule of doctor. What's Do that no called? harm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely not. So the quote is, the fellow knew that it was over for him. And so he didn't struggle when they led him to the room and tied him down. But when I picked up the scalpel, that's when he began screaming. I cut him open from the chest to the stomach, and he screamed terribly, and his face was all twisted in agony. He made his unimaginable sound, which he was screaming so horribly, but then he stopped. This was all in a day's work for the surgeons, but it really left an impression on me because it was my first time. I should also mention here that the victims were not referred to as humans, but as wooden logs. Yeah, I mean, you have to dehumanize them, I think, to get anyone to actually do it. But for that person to take this scalpel and look at this person's face and continue to do it. That is a special kind of evil. Yeah, I don't... I, they would probably have to shoot me. I don't know if I'd ever be able to do that. I 100% could not, yeah. Shoot me right there. Yeah. No, thank you. Impossible. Send me to do stupid menial work. I'll, I'll pick up shit all day. I do not want to do this at uh-huh. all. No, no, no. 
So during the war, the Japanese army used biological weapons developed in the unit on China, killing or injuring 300,000 Chinese. The first time was in 1940 in the province of... So we are still pre-World War II. I mean, this is World War II. This is World War II. Yeah. It's just before we entered. Yeah, I guess we didn't enter till like a year before it ended. So this was done in the province of Shijang, where they dropped wheat, corn, scraps of cotton cloth, and sand infested with plague. Sand? Uh, infected plagues. Yeah. I I don't know why sand. I uh, yeah, I just can't imagine how the, exactly that works. But. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Another occurred two years later in the same province, where hundreds developed flesh-eating ulcers, and the locals called it rotting leg disease. Ooh, that's an image. That may have been the trulemia that they were testing. Uh Another quote from the New York Times article said, Japanese troops also dropped cholera and typhoid cultures in wells and ponds, but the result was often counterproductive. In 1942, germ warfare specialists distributed dysentery, cholera, and typhoid in... Zhejiang province in China, but Japanese soldiers became ill and 1,700 died of the disease, scholars say. How many? 1,700. 1,700. Of their own soldiers did. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the thing with bioterrorism. It is not targeted and it is very easy for anybody in the surrounding area to become a victim. Exactly. The Japanese did not want to limit these biological weapons to China, though, as there were plans being made to attack the U.S. mainland. One idea was to send balloons overseas to deliver the diseases, particularly anthrax, to U.S. soil. And another plan, which was close to coming to fruition, would have been executed in the summer of 1945 using kamikaze pilots to dump plague-infested fleas. Didn't Ridiculous History do a podcast on the balloons? Different balloons, same concept. Oh. They, they strapped bombs on them, and one ended up killing someone. I think most of them were lost at sea, but one or two ended up coming to America and actually killed someone. Yeah. I mean, talk about untargeted. Like, yeah. Just launch balloons in the air with something that could potentially cause thousands, millions of deaths. That is terribly irresponsible. It really is. So the unit did not just test pathogens on humans. Some were put in pressure chambers to see how much a person could take before their eyes popped out. <gasps> oh, I hate an eye thing. Uh, yeah. Others were exposed to gases in an attempt to make a more potent poison, with some of the poison gas being used on Chinese forces. There's even an antidote of a worker witnessing a mother convulsing atop her child to protect her oh, from the gas. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. It, it's... It, this is this is a rough one. We're going to get through it, though. Okay, okay. Gangrene was tested by amputating a body part and retaching it to another side of the body. Or... What? They had their limbs crushed, frozen, or the circulation cut off. The unit tested various weapons on their prisoners as well, such as swords, knives, flamethrowers, etc. Other experiments focused on f- figuring out the limits of the human body, such as food and water deprivation crash injuries, and G-forces. So basically every single form of torture you could possibly think of came from Japanese Unit 731. Yes. Prolonged X-ray exposure was also tested. The most notorious non-pathogen tests were the frostbite testing. 
Prisoners were submerged in tubs of ice water or exposed to the environments till limbs were frozen and ice formed on the skin. <gasps> like whole body tubs of ice. Yeah. And this was time to see how long it took the frostbite to develop. They Why? Would, Why would they do this? Like, that's not even something you could possibly use against an enemy. You can't just drop ice on people. This is actually for their own purposes of how to treat frostbite. That was their quote-unquote reason. That's not a justifiable no. reason. They would hit the frozen limbs to make sure it was frozen. And quote, the limbs would make a sound like a plank of wood when struck with a cane. Different methods were used to test on these victims to figure out how to rapidly thaw the frozen appendage, such as using hot water, fire, or let it thaw overnight. <sighs> I, I think this is some of the worst that we've gotten over. So I just need to take a breather and we can continue. Wow, this is terrible. Horrifyingly, biological testing was not limited to 731. An account by uh, Dr. Yusa said, I periodically asked the police for a communist to dissect, and they sent one over. The vivisection. Oh, like mail ordering a communist. Yep. The vivisection was all for practice rather than for research. And practice they, of what? Why do you need to practice that? They wanted to practice their, their surgical skills, apparently. And they were routine among Japanese doctors working in China in the war. He said that he even cultivated typhoid and passed them on to another unit not connected to 731, and they would use the tubes to infect wells in communist-held territories, which I think are the same ones I referred to before. There was also a Unit 100, which focused on developing animal stock and plant viruses. So they're focusing on food Destroying sources. food, yeah. Yeah. When the war ended, so did the unit. It was completely destroyed, and all the employees were sworn to secrecy. Unfortunately, no prisoners survived, and any that did up to that point were shot. And they probably have no clue how many. There, There's estimates, but they don't know. Wow. The mice and rats used in the research were released and set to the local area. They had moved Release? On. Yep. To local areas to in Japan? No, China. Oh, in China. This is all in China. Oh, my God. They had bubonic plague and could have killed up to 30,000 people between 1946 and 1948. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands, I said around 300,000, that's around that count, uh, were killed because of the actions of Unit 731, with 3,000 being from direct experimentation. However, many counts and details are not known because many of the documents they had destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I probably believe it's a lot higher than that. Yeah. So what happened to all the people that were working at the unit? Personally, it is not a, quote, happy ending, per se. A few were captured by the Chinese and the Russians, but most were granted immunity by General MacArthur in exchange for information gained by the experiments. Oh, come on. For reals? Yes. I believe we gave them immunity because we knew that Russia had some technical info about bioterrorism, and we took the info so that the knowledge from these experiments would not be released to the whole world, and preventing that would be a interest in defense and security to the U.S., or according to an internal War Department document in 1947. Oh, let me guess. I didn't even get that much information from them, just like the Tuskegee trial. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to talk about that actually. All right. So 
the U.S. helped cover this atrocity for years, with most of the world not knowing it for decades. The biggest miscarriage of justice in this incident is that many of the higher-ups in the unit got high-level positions. One became the governor of Tokyo, oh another the president of the Japanese Medical Association. The Medical Association? They gave you someone that was in Unit 731 the ability to try to heal other people after what he did. Yep. Someone became the director of the Health Ministry Preventive Health Research Center, and Yoshisuke Murata, the person in charge of vivisections, became director of the respected Kyoto University Medical School and later the medical director of Kinki University. Great. Yeah, let's just make all the people that refer to human beings as logs. Yeah. And did the most heinous crimes I've ever heard of and put them in charge of the healthcare system. Yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so dumb. It, it, this is such a miscarriage so of justice. Right Eventually, word to get out. A document found here or there. The biggest ones to voice their opinion were the Chinese, not surprisingly. And in 1982, the Chinese government wanted to spread the awareness. And in make what time? 1982? 1982. 40 years afterwards? Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they were voicing their concerns, but like, I don't think many people knew about it. And the Chinese government wanted to spread the awareness and made a museum about it at the unit's location, which is still there today. I, here's a description from Atlas Obscura about the museum. Visitors to the museum follow a strategic path that winds among bungalows, the guards' buildings, and the sheds once used for breeding rats as they follow the development of Japan's chemical warfare program from the beginning to its most heart-wrenching conclusions. The tour's major stops consist of a major crime exhibition hall and a handful of sites scattered among various buildings across the former military encampment. Room 9's medical instruments display its downright chilling due to the array of test tubes, needles, saw, and a coat rack vivisection hooks used to hang human viscera. Among the edge of a weed-strewn field outback, a smokestack remains from a large incinerator once used to burn the deceased. The most moving aspects in the museum is within the crime exhibition hall, where the walls are lined with hundreds of moving photos and first-hand testimonies of those guards who first broke their long-held silence. Japan did not acknowledge the unit until 1984 to 1988, depending on the source, and I'm not sure they actually apologized. Some viewed that it was a necessary evil, quote, to win the war, and others thought the rights of research subjects were irrelevant to Japanese physicians because experimentation of prisoners of war bodies were simply a means to end for gaining knowledge. Um, no. No. To my knowledge, the U.S. has never released any of the research that was handed over. Now, this is where... Really? Really. They never released it. Not to my knowledge. Probably because they're ashamed that nothing came out of it. Right. Well, now, I have known about this unit for years, and I've seen several documentaries about it saying that the research of the that the U.S. achieved was bad or junk science, and that we let go of warm criminals for nothing that they were too sloppy or careless. Researching this topic, I came across a paper that changes that challenges this opinion, not changes, a scientific method. The paper is called A Scientific Method to the Madness of Unit 731's Human Experimentation and Biological Warfare Program. It argues that the experiments were scientifically sound through examining the testimony of the Soviet Union's war crime trials. 
These trials were held in the USSR against 12 individuals who worked at the unit 731. As stated in the paper, in the book Factories of Death, Sheldon Harris concluded that the Japanese data did not meet American expectations. He argued instead that the data produced from the camp was at best of minor significance. Yet, the paper argues that looking at the war crime trial transcripts, they were a lot more rigorous. This is because of several things. First, the Japanese scientists had been contributing to medical literature and scientific reports prior to war, and scientists have coll- had collaborated with Robert Koch. Not on human testing, but they were trained by Robert Koch. Testimony and trial documents described them using the scientific methods such as determining dose response and determining the hierarchy of the best way to infect transmit disease as well as the abandoning of making bombs because no matter what they almost killed all the bacteria they also used control versus treatment designs and null hypothesis now this is by far not defending them in any sense of the word they were horrible people who did horrible things i just want to point this out because i wonder if saying the science was bad was just to further demonize those involved that no matter what nothing could have come out of this well the americans thought so since they didn't want to try them for war crimes the only thing i know is that what was useful was the japanese found out how and implemented the best way to treat frostbite like i alluded to earlier however we still don't know if the u.s used any of this info or not for their biological weapons program which we did have We sure did. I got a little bit about that. Or if any of it was useful. I believe I read there was a call for the documents to be released during the pandemic to see if there was any useful information that could have helped the world, but that didn't happen. Well, I'm not sure that would have helped in any way, but... Yeah. The truth is, we'll never know the whole horror story, but I think we can agree that to do something like this in the name of research is never justified. Nope, 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 nope. And I wanted to finish this story with one more quote from that New York Times article. A farmer that had been a former medic in the unit said, There's a possibility this could happen again, the old man said, smiling genially, because in war, you have to win. And that is my story. And you are about to explode. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, you knew about Unit 731, but I did not know about 731, I guess. So... Sorry if that I was rambling a little bit too long, but I wanted to get through that because this is a rough story to get through. That was the roughest story we have ever told on this podcast. So with my story, I think... I think we need to take a break. We need to take a break. So we're going to end this and make this a two-parter. Wow, I bet you no one saw that coming. Yeah, I'm usually... I try to be positive and I felt like this was there's no way to be positive and i brought everyone down to a a little depressed right so like you know go watch it no i was gonna say go watch a disney movie but i mean they always have parents dying if you have a pet go hug your pet pet your cat go hug your pet go for a walk watch bob's burgers cleanse your eyeballs and your ear holes and we'll see you next week for part two of bioterrorism and world war ii If you liked this episode, which definitely seems weird, if you found this episode interesting, 
and you'd like to have help other people learn about microbes and how they impact history, go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast on wherever you're listening to this podcast, The Microbe Moment. And if you'd like to see more microbial facts, you can also find us on Instagram at microbigals, M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. And if you are really interested in helping us out with the podcast, go ahead and leave us a review. Five stars, four stars, whatever you feel. If it's one star, maybe don't leave us a review. (laughs) We like you to be honest, but not brutally honest. Yeah, because we have feelings. (laughs) So until next time, Microbial Nation. Feed your microbes. Feed your guts. Make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.